Um, it's a, always a joy to be here with you and open the Word of God. We'll be in Galatians chapter 3. I don't have any fancy PowerPoints, so you're going to have to use your, your real Bibles or your phones. So um, get ready. Uh, yeah, so before my wife and I and our family moved here to Indonesia, I was a counselor or chaplain for about 10 years. So we've been here for about six months in Jakarta and two years almost in Indonesia. But before that was 10 years of counseling. So most of my experience in ministry is as a counselor, not as a preacher. So just keep that in mind. But uh, I also, that also means I take a lot of my sermon illustrations from counseling. And over 10 years of counseling five to 10 times a week, I began to see a common theme. And that theme took the form of a question. The question was, who am I? I saw so many people every week struggling with understanding who they are, what their identity was, how to define themselves. And I began to see a connection with that question and another theme. And that was their relationship to their parents. I'll never forget a a girl. uh, She was a single mom. She came in and uh, she told me her story about as a little girl, she had been abused. As a young woman, she had been assaulted. uh, And her family was dysfunctional. There wasn't a whole lot of communication with her parents. She didn't feel like she could tell them what was going on. Uh, She kept all that inside, and the pain just continued to spiral as people sinned against her and as she, in an attempt to do something with that pain, made sinful choices, and things just spiraled out of control until one day the thing that finally broke her was her father called her up and said, this is the last straw. Um, We're not going to have any more communication with you or your child. You're an embarrassment to us. And she just broke down and in her tears was saying, I just don't know who I am anymore. Or I remember the helicopter pilot who had spent his whole life wanting to be like his dad. And his dad was a jet fighter pilot. And he wanted to be like his dad so much. And I don't, I don't even know if his dad ever told him that he wanted his son to do what he did. But this is this guy's life. He wanted to be a jet fighter pilot. And when he got to flight school, he just didn't have the marks. He couldn't get into the jet fighter program. And so he felt like a failure. No offense to any helicopter pilots here. Um, I don't think any less of you. I could never do that. But uh, this man, he felt like he was a failure because he could not be a jet pilot like his father. And he kept telling me, I guess that's just who I am. I'm, I'm a failure. That's my identity. Or even here, I, I know it's a different context, and I'm still learning the Indonesian culture and context, but I still see this question being asked sometimes of, of who am I? How do I define my identity? 
I was just last week talking with uh, a guy at a coffee shop and asking him questions. And I'll be honest, I was, I was surf, uh, searching for sermon illustrations. <laughs> so I was asking him about his relationship with his dad. And it was just a really neat God moment that that, that was what had been on his heart that week, his relationship with his father. And he, he broke down saying, I, I love my dad, I respect my dad, but I don't really know my dad. He's distant. We've never really had a deep conversation. And his relationship with his dad and his, the distance of his father was making him feel lost, making him feel like he wasn't sure if he was living up to his father's expectations, making him unsure about who he really was. I could go on and on with stories about people and their relationships with their parents and how that has positively or negatively impacted them. Now, I'm not one of these people that subscribes to the idea that if uh, you can blame everything that's wrong in your life on your parents, I don't think that's biblical, right? Uh, it's, it's the easy way out, but it's, it's not the truth. But there's no denying the fact that our relationship with our parents and our relationship with our children have a profound impact on who we are. And that, that's because God has made us that way. God has put us into families. He's given us families. He's instituted the family because it's a picture of who he is. It's supposed to tell us something about the nature of God. God is by nature a father. The relationships in the family were given to us by God to be a reflection of the love that God the Father has for God the Son and the love that God the Father has for his people. But we have a problem. None of us are in perfect families. You know, I know that. I know that because you are in those families. <laughs> and none of us are perfect, right? Um, same reason there's no perfect church. Because <laughs> we're all in the church and we're all imperfect. Now, some people have had relatively good families. But even then, they, you would have to admit that there's, it's not as good as it could be. Or even if it's as good as you could imagine... The fact remains it's temporary, right? At some point, we lose family members. We get separated by distance. Uh, different things happen. It's, it's not a permanent thing. But many others of us have had brokenness in our families, or, or sometimes they haven't really even ever begun. Some people don't even know who their earthly father is. So where's the hope? Well, I... I hope that when I ask the question, where is the hope, you know that the answer is always going to be in the gospel. The hope is in Christ. Okay. So we're going we're to talk about the gospel today. I hope that's okay. But you may be thinking, okay, that's, that's kind of a Sunday school easy answer. Where's the hope? Hope is in Jesus. You know, whenever I ask my kids questions, they always answer, Jesus because they know, you know, at least half the time, that's the right answer. Um, but I, I want to go deeper. I want to I I hold on to something that's concrete, that's clear, that's specific, that can speak to the brokenness 
in our families. Speak to the reality that we know there's a love from a perfect father that we've never experienced but we're created to long for. So what I want to talk about today is, is what's called the doctrine of adoption. I'm going to make a bold claim. I believe that if God's people, if Christians understood this doctrine, it would change the way we live. It would transform the way we look at ourselves. If we were saturated in this truth, it would transform our witness to the watching world. And I'm not, thankfully, the only person who thinks this. So here's a couple quotes. Uh, J.I. Packer says this, Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Uh, Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs said this, If we could but know what this privilege of spiritual adoption were, all the riches of all the kingdoms in the world would be but as filthy dung to us. Pretty strong statements. So what is the doctrine of adoption? I'll just offer a, this is my own little definition. But put simply, the, adoption, the doctrine of adoption is the reality that through the gospel, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God not only saves believers from their sins, but he makes them his beloved children. He brings them into his family where they enjoy full fellowship with God and all the rights and privileges of one who is a member of God's eternal family. So like all truths in Scripture, there's, there's a vertical truth and then there's a horizontal application of that truth. Okay, so when you hear the word adoption, you're probably thinking earthly adoption, right? Because that's, that's the picture that we have. That's the context for that word is earthly adoption. But before we talk about that, and we'll, we'll get there, I want to talk about the vertical truth of spiritual adoption. And so I want to, I want to look to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 3. <clears throat> and just like earthly adoption comes in stages, you know, there's the, the home study and the visit and there's paperwork and all these things that have to happen, spiritual adoption also comes in stages. They're not necessarily in time, but they're logical stages of spiritual adoption. So we're going to see four of them today as we look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary or basic principles of the world. Now we're jumping right in the middle of a discussion that Paul's having here about the status of God's people under the law. And now he's expanding it to talk about all of God's people, not just the Jews, but Jews and Gentiles, everyone. And he says that we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Some translations say basic principles or elementary spirits. What does that mean? What does it mean to be enslaved to the elementary principles? Well, in summary, it means to be enslaved to all that is not God. Verse 8 says that. It says, When we did not know God, we were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So this will, would include our sin. It would include uh, worldly philosophies. It would include Satan. It would include 
legalism, just ideas that you can earn your way out of slavery. It's important that we understand this because this is our starting point. Everyone in this room started in slavery to their sin. To be outside of Christ is to be inside the slave camp of sin. The Bible talks about us in similar ways, calls us children of wrath, enemies of God, slaves to sin. This is our starting point. In order to understand this story, we have to understand where the story starts, and it starts with us all enslaved in bondage to our sin. Just like a woman who has a child when she is addicted to alcohol, that child will have alcohol in their blood. We are born into this world with sin in us. We are born into this world addicted to sin. Just like a, a child born today in North Korea is born into a state of war with South Korea, we are born into this world in a state of war with God. That's where we start. That's what chapter 4, verse 3, Galatians says. Because of Adam's sin against our heavenly Father, the whole world has been turned into a spiritual orphanage, a spiritual slave camp. That's where the story starts. But thank God it does not end there. Let's look at the next verse. It says, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. God's word often does this. It paints a bleak picture of our helplessness of our spiritual state of our hopelessness hopelessness and then with one little word he'll flip the script right we were enslaved helpless but at the right time god came and it says he came to redeem those who were under the law what does that word redeem mean? Well, even today, redeem has an economic connotation, right? You, you redeem a coupon. You exchange something for something else. Originally, the word redeem went to the slave market. It was, it was, a, it was a terminology used in the slave trade that you would redeem a slave, you would pay something and buy a slave out of the slave market. You would redeem a slave. So what happened is we were slaves to sin, slaves to our failure to keep the law of God, slaves to our inability to escape the punishment for breaking the law of God, and God sent his only son to redeem us, to pay something for us, and the price that he paid was his own life. He paid for us in his blood. And it says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And that's important because the price 
buy us out of slavery wasn't just his blood. It was his life. It wasn't just his death. It was his life. If, if, if all that it took to redeem us was the death of Christ, he could have came down, died on a Friday, resurrected on Sunday, gone back to heaven. Nice and easy. Well, not easy. Sorry, that wasn't the right word. <laughs> but that's not all it took. He had to come and live life as a human, as one of us, to walk in our shoes, to live perfectly obedient so that he could give us his obedience. He could give us his righteousness so he could take our sin, die for it on the cross, but also he could give us his righteousness. This great exchange happened. And all of this was his initiation. He did this out of love, right? I was at uh, an office earlier this week, uh, or last week, and there was a poster in the office. This is a Christian ministry, and there is a quote on the poster. You've probably seen this quote. Uh, It was attributed to Benjamin Franklin. He didn't originate it, though, but it says, God helps those who help themselves. And when I saw that, everything, first of all, my heart just sunk because I love this brother. But everything in me wanted to just scream, no, that's a lie. That's not true. That's the opposite of the good news. God helps those who confess their inability to help themselves. God helps those who realize that they can't help themselves, that we can't set ourselves free from the bondage of sin. You can't earn your way out of hell. You can't raise yourself out of the grave. You cannot redeem yourself. God has to act, and God has acted. God has purchased his people at the cost of his own son's life. That's what we're talking about when we talk about redemption. So if you're a slave and someone buys you, what has changed? Ownership. You're still a slave. The only thing that's changed is who owns you. So what happens in redemption is is we are slaves to sin and Christ redeems us and we become redeemed slaves of Christ. And what a magnificent identity to have, a slave of Christ, a redeemed slave of the king of all existence who bought you at the price of his own son's life. Who does that? Who exchanges their son for a rebellious slave? If the story ended there with us having the privilege of being slaves in the household of God, That would be more than enough to praise God for eternity. But the story does not end there. It keeps getting better. Much better. We move now from slaves to sin to being slaves of Christ to now being adopted children of God. Why did God send his son to redeem us? What does it say? So that 
we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This, this, is, this is the highest privilege of the gospel. Spiritual adoption describes a legal reality where our identity has been changed. God grants to us the full rights and privileges and immunities appropriate to his sons and his daughters. He legally confers the status of sonship on those who formerly belonged to the domain of darkness. But even more amazing than a legal reality is a, a transformed identity, a transformed relationship. So if you're a Christian, you're not just a forgiven sinner. You've been made a child of God. One author says, To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is far greater. We've got to understand what this means. A, a, a slave can always be sold to another master. A forgiven criminal could always f- commit another crime and be sent back to jail. But a child cannot lose their status because they didn't do anything to earn it. No one can take that away from you. You see, if we only understand the gospel in terms of forgiveness of sins and salvation from hell, which it does include all of that, but it's so much more, then you'll never see the transforming effect that the gospel is meant to have on your life and your identity. The greatest benefit of the gospel is not that we don't have to go to hell. The greatest benefit of the gospel, the highest privilege, is that through adoption we're transformed from being enemies of God to being sons and daughters of the King of Kings. We no longer have to be defined by anything else. So, I want to shift gears a little bit. And as I said earlier, there's, there's a vertical truth about spiritual adoption. And that's what we've been looking at in God's Word. But God's also given us a horizontal application of that truth in human adoption. And just like our earthly father is supposed to tell us something about our heavenly father, earthly adoption can tell us something about our spiritual adoption, all right? And some of you may know, uh, my wife and I, almost exactly four years now, uh, finally got to bring home uh, our two children from Congo. And uh, they're adopted, a boy and a girl, Isaiah and Phoebe. They're awesome. Um, Hope you get a chance to meet them. So we have two biological children, and we have two adopted children. And through that process, which was a long, painful process, and and it hasn't always been easy even after they've been home, uh, we've learned a lot of things about ourselves, but more importantly, we've learned a lot of things about God. And I want to share just a few things that we've learned along the way that hopefully will help you enrich your understanding of your spiritual adoption. So number one, God's adopted children are graciously pursued. Isaiah and Phoebe did not send us a cute video of them doing some cool tricks. They didn't send us a resume. They didn't send us a CV 
or send us an email saying, hey, we're, we're two really cute, talented, smart kids. We think we'd make a great addition to your team. Please consider adopting us. Right? That's not how it worked. They had no idea we existed. But we heard about the need, and in love, we responded to that need. And we pursued them. This is what God does to us. How much more amazing is God's love for us? Not only did we not pursue him, we actively rebelled against God, and that's when he pursued us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He chose us not because we were lovely, but because he is love. Um, <clears throat> it was a... It was a costly adoption. And I don't just mean financially. I mean emotionally, spiritually, physically, relationally. It was a costly adoption. Adoption requires sacrifice. And to be honest, even though today I would gladly pay 10 times, 100 times uh, in the emotional cost, the spiritual cost, all those things, I would pay that to, to bring these children home into our family because they're home and I see them and I love them. But if you would have, at the beginning of the process, told me, this is what it's going to cost you. This is how long it's going to take. This is what you're going to go through. I don't know that I would have done it, honestly. How thankful I am that my Father in heaven is not like me. God knew exactly what it would cost to adopt us as his children. And he did it anyways, and he did it gladly. Ephesians 1, that we read already today, states that before the foundation of the world, God was thinking about his adopted children. And he knew full well what the price of that adoption would be, and he embraced it. John Piper says, if the legal red tape of adoption seems long and hard, keep in mind that this tape is not yet red with your blood, but Jesus satisfied all the legal demands precisely by shedding his blood. Third, <coughs> adoption and parenting in general but perhaps adoption in a special way requires supernatural patience. Um, I remember reading a story in a book about adoption where the father goes to Russia and he's adopting two boys around ages one and two. And he goes into this orphanage and it's just a horrible place um, filled with cribs with children that are one or two years old that have hardly ever left the crib, hardly ever been held. Uh, their, their cribs are stained with urine. There's uh, marks all over their bodies. Just a horrible, horrible place. And he, he gets his two boys, and they uh, are processed out, and he's getting into the taxi, and these two boys just lose it. 
and are fighting him and biting him, trying to crawl out the window of the taxi, trying to get back to the orphanage because that's all that they ever knew. That was safe for them. That was comfort. And inside, his heart's just breaking. Boys, you don't know what I have in store for you. You don't know what's waiting for you at the end of this trip. You don't know the new life that I'm bringing you to. But because they didn't trust their father, all they wanted to do is go back to what they knew. And we've experienced that a little bit with our our kids, especially at the beginning when they didn't really know us, they didn't really trust me, they didn't know that I would come home after I left for work in the morning. They didn't know that when they woke up the next day, their father would still be there. Um, and there was times where I was, I was tempted to say things like, you don't know how much I've done for you. You don't know how much I've sacrificed for you. How can you treat me like this? But in those moments, God got a hold of my heart, and he, he, he reminded me, this is exactly how you sound when you want to run back to your sin. When you're not trusting me, when you're thinking that your sin is better than what I have in store for you, when you won't trust me and go with me to where I'm bringing you. We treat God like that all the time and how thankful we should be that he is so patient with us. After all he's done for us, he's still tender and kind and waits for us to learn just how great the extent of his love is for us. Adoption grants unhindered access. My kids can come to me at any time and ask me anything they want. Doesn't mean I'll always give it to them, but they can ask. They have unhindered access to me. Any time of the day or night, and they often take advantage of this, usually in the middle of the night, <laughs> they come and they want something and they need to talk to me. No one has that kind of access except for them and my wife. <laughs> usually, actually, they're trying to talk to her. But um, your kids don't have that. Your kids can't come to my house and wake me up in the middle of the night. <laughs> All right? If your kid comes to me and says, can you change my diaper, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I'm going to say, no, talk to your dad. I'm not your dad. And dads, the answer when your kids ask you to change your diaper is not talk to your mom. So just put that in there. But uh, <clears throat> we have this kind of access through adoption to the king of the universe we can't walk into the president's house whenever we want and talk to him. You can't even do that to your boss. But we can do that at any time. Enter the throne room of heaven and talk to the king of kings anytime because he's our father. Tim Keller says, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And we have that kind of access to God. Next, adoption enables identity-driven obedience. My kids are expected to obey me precisely because they are my kids. We didn't have a probationary time 
where we said, okay, you can come live at our house, pretend like you're part of our family, here's the rules. If you keep these rules, if you get like a 90% or above, we'll then adopt you and you can be our children. No, that's not how it works. They were adopted, they were declared my children, and because they are my children, I expect them to obey the rules of the house. That's how it is with God. We don't earn our way into God's family. We don't obey in order to become children of God. We obey God because he's our father. The difference between identity-driven obedience and obedience-driven identity is the difference between being a slave to sin and being a child of God. You have to get that distinction. We obey not in an effort to become someone different. We obey because we have been made someone different through God's adoption of us. A few more. Adoption shows the true nature of gospel love. Sometimes being an adoptive parent, you get into some awkward situations or conversations, um, especially here in Indonesia, you know, big boule with two white kids and two black kids and nobody knows what to do with us. Um, but we get to talk about the gospel because it's such a picture of that. Um, and, and, and sometimes we'll get asked some kind of awkward questions like, is it hard to love kids that aren't yours? And you just want to say, no, no, that's, that's not the right question. These are our kids. They came into our family a different way, but they're our children. They're no less our children than our biological children. And, and what's wrong with a question like that is it betrays a false understanding of love and identity that doesn't come from the Bible, but it comes more from a, a secular, materialistic, Darwinian idea that somehow love is merely a function of biology, that we can only love someone who's a blood relative. And if that's true, then why do you love your spouse? I mean, I'm assuming, I'm hoping that your spouse is not your blood relative. We, we love our spouses because we choose to love them. Love is a choice. You, you choose to love. You commit to love. You make a covenant to love. And this is the kind of love that God has adopted us with. It's not a love that he's obligated to give us because he created us. It's a love that he chooses to lavish on us. He commits himself. He makes a covenant to sacrificially love us into his family. And he signs that covenant with his blood. If we have a hard time thinking of an adopted child as a true child, we're going to have a very difficult time understanding the good news of Jesus Christ because it tells us about a spiritual transracial adoption that takes place in the life of all those who trust in Christ. This adoption makes us one family, and although we are from different places, we speak different languages, we look different, we're one. Because we have the same Father. We're one family. And this, this congregation is such a beautiful picture of that. And, and the world needs more pictures of that. And the world is desperately trying 
to stay unified, but it's, it's fracturing every day because they don't know what true unity is and that it only comes through Christ. Lastly, adoption gives us an inheritance. If you look back in verse 7 of Galatians chapter 4, We'll start in verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. When I adopted Phoebe and Isaiah, I gave them my name. When I die, they will inherit everything I have. Unfortunately for them, that's not a whole lot, but um, they will inherit what I have to give them. If we are united by faith through Christ, everything that's Christ's is ours. Just think about that. How well do you think God the Father loves God the Son? How full of affection is his heart for his son. How pleased is he in his son, Jesus. All of that love, all of that affection is ours if we are in Christ. And he feels that for you. So not only do we have the privilege of knowing God as our father now and being part of his family here on earth, But in Christ, we have an inheritance of infinite worth to look forward to. For the true children of God, eternity will be an endless adventure of exploring that inheritance. So, in closing, I just want to ask one question. Who are you? Do you know who your father is? Are you still enslaved? To your sin? Are you still defining yourself by your successes or your failures? Are you still allowing other people's definitions of you have power in your life? Or have you seen and heard the voice of your Heavenly Father? Are you still crying out to go back to the orphanage, to what's safe, what you know? Are you willing to trust and go where your father is going to take you and trust that the life he has for you is better than you can imagine? Don't leave this room a spiritual orphan today. Let's pray. Dear Father, God, help us not to take lightly the fact that we can call you Father, that you've told us to call you Father. Lord, help us to remember what it took for you to give us the right to call you that. Help that not to be just a word or a title that we throw around, but help us to understand the reality of what it means to have you as our Father. It changes everything about us. It changes what we live for. 
changes how we see ourselves. It changes how we see others. God, I pray that we can say with joy and join with the Apostle John who wrote, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Amen. Thank you, John. And let's take this moment just to reflect on what we've just heard.